When disoriented in a building on fire, off a hose line and in zero visibility, firefighters are taught to walk straight until you find a wall. Turn left or right, stay on the wall, and follow it until it eventually leads you to the outside. Fifteen years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, on the evening of June 18, 2007, driver engineer William Kilcoyne was in that very situation. He'd come off the hose line and gotten disoriented when four firefighters, low on air, materialized out of the smoke, bumped into him spinning him around, and then disappeared back into the smoke. Those four firefighters would die in that fire, but William Kilcoyne didn't. Those four were the last to be found of the nine firefighters that died that night. Their bodies were found separated from one another, spread throughout the small offices and rooms at the back of the main showroom of the Sofa Superstore. When you look at the diagram of the building that was included in the investigative report of that fire, it starkly shows those offices are a maze with no way out other than the way in. But no one in the Sofa Superstore fire could see that in the smoke and heat. The way they were spread out seems to suggest that those four had all found walls within that maze and were attempting to follow the wall out when they either ran out of air or were killed by the fire. Kilcoin, disoriented and not in contact with a hose line, chose to do something different than find a wall. He made circles, gradually larger circles, until he found the hose line again. And because he did, he was able in the minutes just after that to lead three other firefighters who were in trouble out of that building before the building exploded in fire, claiming nine firefighters' lives. Over the years, I've read the Sofa Superstore report more than 30 times, and I've taught an eight-hour class on that fire to more than 1,500 firefighters. And in all that time, I haven't found a single student who said that they had been taught to make circles when disoriented in a fire. Kilcoin, in that moment, did something other firefighters don't do, and it ended up saving his life and three other firefighters that night. At some point very early in my career, I gave some serious thought to this question. What was the reason I was a firefighter? Sure, I wanted to help people and give back to my community, but what was it doing for me? What was the willingness to sacrifice my health, my safety, my family life every third day, all the birthdays, holidays, etc. that were missed? What was all that for? What was I chasing for myself? How was firefighting going to fulfill me? going to maybe fill a hole in me. It's an introspective line of thought and a pretty self-centered question if you think about it. We tend to think of firefighting as the opposite of self-centered. Firefighting is regarded as one of the most noble professions because of our commitment to self-sacrifice. But think about it. There's a component to the concept of sacrifice that is for you. Sacrificing for others makes me feel good. Sure, they get the help they need, but it makes me feel good. If you're like me, I like telling people I'm a firefighter. Why? I have a firefighter license plate. Why? How does it help anyone but me when I tell strangers in other cars who I'll never see again that I'm a firefighter? The answer is it doesn't. I like letting strangers know that I'm a firefighter because it makes me feel good. I do it for me. And isn't that kind of self-centered or even selfish? 
But I think that's okay. That realization that my career choice was at least partially for my benefit, not totally for others, it was liberating. It actually led me to realize what one of my career goals is. I've spent the last 25 years chasing it, and it's something I've only seen others do a few times, one of them being William Kilcoyne. What I want is something so elusive, so rare, that I think firefighters encounter it maybe once or twice in a career. My problem is that I'm fast approaching the end of my time with my department, and I still haven't met my goal. What I want is to be the person in a particular moment who makes a difference by being different. So, let me explain. Say to a firefighter, take an inch and three-quarter through the front door for fire attack, and just about all of us worth a damn are going to do the same thing. Give ten different firefighters an order to vertically vent a single-family dwelling, and all ten are going to do it basically the same way. I know some will be better at it than others, but to a large extent, firefighters are pretty interchangeable. So, for instance, think about how rare making a grab is in a whole career. And I'm talking about literally putting your hands on the victim. Those opportunities normally don't come around but a few times in a 30-year stint. Now, think of those very few opportunities that do come along to make a grab and objectively ask yourself, how many of those would have gone the same way if I was off that day and someone else was riding in my seat on the truck? How much did I matter to getting the results we got? It's a sobering question. We don't like to think of ourselves as interchangeable. What I'm still looking for is that moment where I am the difference, where no one else in my place would have done the same thing or would have seen the problem the same way or would have taken the same actions. I want the opportunity to be a William Kilcoin. And let me be very clear about this. I'm not looking for any recognition for it. I'd be perfectly content to make that difference, be that difference, and quietly be the only person that knew. Yeah, I would consider my 30 years very well spent. But those opportunities are so rare, they're like lightning striking twice, or even lightning not striking a house. This was either 2007 or 2008, and I was a station captain assigned with one of the most tactically proficient captains in our department. I'd requested the assignment so that I could learn from him. The guys at the station called me Big Cap and him Little Cap, based on our size. But his name is Craig. It was a summer day and I was standing alone in the engine bay with the bay door up watching a swirl of approaching purple clouds. A summer thunderstorm was on the way and the leaves on all the trees across the street had turned white as they flipped over, shaking in the wind. It hadn't started raining yet and out of nowhere, lightning creased the sky directly in front of me. The kind of lightning strike that's so close... You swear you hear it before you see it. There wasn't anything but houses within a mile of the station in that direction, and I was sure it had hit one of them. We had an engine, a tiller, and an ambulance running out of the station, and I made my way inside to tell all of them that we were about to get a call. I was still trying to explain it when the bell went off, a structure fire in the area of where the lightning struck. By the time we made it to the trucks, it had started raining, a real downpour. It took us only about four minutes to wind our way through the streets, but the weird thing was, by the time we were coming down the hill toward the house that was supposedly on fire, the rain had stopped. I started my size up on the approach, and I didn't see any smoke or fire, just steam coming off the hot summer roof. The same steam was coming from all the houses, but 
there were neighbors standing around pointing at this house, which isn't usually a good sign. They told us that lightning struck the large pine tree only about 10 feet from the front of the house, and that after that they'd seen smoke coming from the gabled roof at the center of the A-side. They also said the homeowners worked and no one was home. We surrounded the ranch house, got up on the roof, peered through the windows trying to see around the drapes and blinds, and couldn't find any sign of fire. We weren't going to kick any doors in, because as far as we could tell, there wasn't a reason to. They probably had just seen steam coming from the roof. Either Craig or I slowed down the rest of the alarm pretty quick. When the second in engine and battalion chief arrived, we told them we'd continue to investigate, but we were pretty sure there wasn't a fire and that the rest of the alarm could cancel. I had done a 360 looking into every window, and after me, one of the tiller drivers had done the same. We were all over the house like ants, but we couldn't find anything wrong or out of the ordinary. I was ready to go back in service, just like almost everybody else, when one of our guys up on the roof called down to me and told me I needed to come up there. He pointed to an attic vent and told me to take a deep whiff. It smelled like a fragrant candle, something that would have been named pink orchid lady slippers or something like that. Very fragrant, very strong. And it was coming from an attic vent, which didn't make any sense. Why would there be a candle burning in the attic? Nobody's home. I sat there on the roof next to the attic vent trying to figure it out. I'd seen lightning do some crazy things when it strikes a house, so I was trying to imagine where all this might make sense. As I did, Craig started doing his own 360, looking into each window, which would make it the third time that we had looked into those windows. I figured there really wasn't much reason to, but it also wouldn't hurt. He started on the A-side and went counterclockwise around the house. When he got to the back patio, he looked in the French door to the kitchen, which had a drape covering the whole thing. I knew because I'd looked into it myself just minutes before. Except that when he did it, he called out suddenly to bring the medic bags. He took a step backwards and then planted his other foot in the door. I heard it crash in and Craig charged in the house. By the time I got down the ladder and made my way to the back patio, the ambulance crew was inside with the rest of our guys. Through the kitchen and into a front room that was under the gabled section of roof where the neighbors supposedly saw the smoke, they were tending to a man who was unconscious laying on a couch. Our paramedic quickly figured out the man on the couch was extremely hypoglycemic, the kind where the meter only says low. We also put a firefighter in the attic out of an abundance of caution, but he didn't find a thing. There were enough hands treating this guy, so I started giving the whole situation some thought. We very nearly didn't find this guy. I remember slowly backing my way out of the house, step by step, watching the crew work, backing my way through the kitchen, and then onto the patio. I pulled the French door closed and leaned forward to look through the window and around the edge of the drapes, just like I had done before. How had I missed this guy on the couch? What I realized was that to see the guy on the couch, you had to look through that sliver of the window that the drape wasn't blocking, look through the kitchen, through the door to the front room, to the far wall of the front room where the couch was. And even then, you could only see this guy's feet. How did Craig see that? I didn't see it the first time. Our tiller driver didn't see it when he looked in. How'd Craig see it? With the meds, the man on the couch came too, got his wits about him, and explained that he was diabetic and a guest of the homeowners. He'd flown in from out of town, which explained why there weren't any cars in the driveway and why the neighbors thought no one was home. I asked him if he'd been burning a candle prior to lying down. 
He said no. I briefly explored the house and didn't find anything out of the ordinary, but did see a can of air freshener in the hallway bathroom, and the bathroom vent was running. That's when it all came together. I went back out to the front room and felt compelled to tell the guy on the couch the crazy story of how we got there. It goes like this. The guy on the couch had probably used the bathroom, sprayed air freshener, and turned on the bathroom vent, which vents into the attic. He then laid down on the couch and became unconscious, slipping into a diabetic emergency. Lightning struck a tree close to the house, practically at the feet of the guy on the couch, and a quick summer rain wet the hot roof and then stopped. Neighbors, alarmed by the lightning, looked out their windows and saw steam from the roof and thought it was smoke coming from the house and called 911. We showed up but couldn't find any signs of trouble and were ready to leave when a firefighter on the roof smelled something that didn't make any sense, the air freshener that we thought was a candle. That puzzled us long enough to stay there for a few more minutes instead of heading back to the station. Just long enough for Craig to do a third lap around the house, look through a sliver of unobstructed window on a door, see through a room, into another room, and see a foot on a couch. That guy would have died if Craig hadn't seen him. The homeowners weren't due to be home until late that night. He most likely would have slipped into a coma and died. Any single piece of that chain of events doesn't happen, and the guy on the couch dies. If lightning doesn't strike pointing the way, he dies. If the neighbors hadn't looked out their windows, the guy dies. If it hadn't stopped raining so that they could mistake the steam for smoke and call 911, he dies. If a firefighter hadn't put his nose to the attic vent, the guy dies. And of course, if Craig hadn't looked through the French door a third time, the guy dies. It's a sequence of events like a line of dominoes, with the last domino being where we find the guy on the couch and give him meds and save his life. If you remove any one thing from that sequence... The chain is broken. You know, there's some narration at the beginning of a movie I love called Magnolia that attempts to explain these kinds of events. It goes like this. There are stories of coincidence and chance and intersections and strange things told. And which is which and who only knows. And we generally say, well, if that was in a movie, I wouldn't believe it. Someone's so-and-so met someone else's so-and-so, and so on. And it is in the humble opinion of this narrator that strange things happen all the time. I agree. Strange things do happen all the time. Lots of older firefighters have a story like mine, and while my story may seem hard for some to believe, it did happen, as did my realization in that moment of the impact that Craig had He'd made my career goal one of his accomplishments, and he never said a word about it. I was given the opportunity to be that difference that day, but I missed my chance. We weren't negligent investigating that fire. No one would have blamed us if we'd missed the guy on the couch. We had no reason to break down doors, and I looked through the same windows Craig did. I could have looked 20 times and probably not seen the guy on the couch. Craig was the reason someone lived. With a yard full of firefighters, he was the only one that actually had vision that day, the only one who could see. Later, when asked how he did it, he simply said that on the way to every call, he said a prayer that God would let him see things others can't. 
I'm still waiting for my moment. I'm still waiting for the point where I get to fulfill my career goal. And time's running out. I'll retire in a couple of years, and I've only got a few left to be that person in that moment. To be a William Kilcoin making circles in the smoke. To be a Craig looking through a French door. To see and do things no one else does. And I encourage you to ask yourself, why are you doing what you do? What is the goal of your career? Choosing to be a firefighter requires sacrifices. It's not the easy choice. It's not an easy life for you or anyone around you. Don't cop out with an easy answer to a tough question. So I'm asking you, why do you get on the truck every third day? Do you have a hole in yourself you're trying to fill? What part of what you do is for you? Because if you haven't figured that out, you might miss your opportunity to fill that hole like I did 15 years ago. I hope I get another chance. And that call with the guy on the couch? I like to believe that he went on to be the difference in someone else's life. I like to think that he wasn't the end of that line of dominoes, but was just a piece in a much larger chain of events. Maybe we're all just dominoes in one long chain. The guy on the couch, and William Kilcoin in Charleston, and Worcester's Chief Mike McNamee at the Cold Storage Fire, and the Georgia DNR helicopter pilot Boyd Kleins at the Fulton Cotton Mill Fire, and, of course, Craig at that little house in Brookhaven that didn't get struck by lightning. All of them making a difference. Me? I'm still looking for that next oh-so-rare opportunity to be the difference by being the different firefighter. And if it comes, I pray that I may see. Combustible is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to Combustible to make sure you don't miss out on an episode. Follow us on Facebook so we know how many of you listeners there are out there. And you can check us out online at combustiblethepodcast.com. As always, we would like to thank the Golden Dogs and True North Records for letting us use their song Saints at the Gates for our theme music. You can find the Golden Dogs music on any streaming platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later.